0: Chapter 10, Mathematical Marvels and the Obstruction of Monotheism We must never forget that Christianity was built upon the foundation of Jewish monotheism. That's from the article on the Trinity in A Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels. The word is one in Greek means single, unique, only, unitary, one of two. Early Christianity has a comprehensive awareness of the astonishing import of the single and the unique. That's from the exegetical dictionary of the New Testament. The idea that the God of the Hebrew Bible, who is a single divine individual, reveals himself as mysteriously three is contradicted by the New Testament from beginning to end. Jesus, as the center of the New Covenant, deliberately makes any change in the nature of God impossible. He insists on the Unitarian Shema of his Jewish heritage. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. In John's Gospel, Jesus' Unitarianism is equally patent. He sums up the Christian quest for eternal life as belief in, quote, You, Father the only one who is truly God, and in Jesus Christ whom you sent. John 17, verse 3. The Father is a single person. He is the only God. John 5, 44. This is a transparently simple definition of the true God uniting the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament. If the Father is, quote, the only one, who is truly God, this means, of course, that no other person besides the Father is the true God. Jesus is never called the only God, nor the Almighty. Revelation 1, verse 8 is no exception, though some red-letter Bibles wrongly ascribe this verse to Jesus. The Almighty in that verse, in Revelation 1, 8, is the Father, as everywhere else in the New Testament, ten times altogether. He who is, who was, and is to come is carefully distinguished from Jesus in verse 4 and 5. Some modern exponents of religion are far removed from Jesus' concept of God. This is illustrated by the recent remark of Deepak Chopra, in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I quote, The most dangerous idea in religion is, My God is the only true God, and my religion is the only true religion. Quotation from Chopra. Jesus would be judged guilty on both counts when he said the words reported of him in John 17.3 and John 14.6. As the only true God, God is distinguished from the Messiah, the human agent. The Father is a single person, and that single person is defined as having no others besides Him. This is pure Unitarianism. It echoes the Hebrew Bible perfectly. I quote, Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Malachi 2, verse 10. There is nothing in John's account of Jesus' teaching, nor in any saying of Jesus, about the true God being one substance composed of two or three persons. For Jesus, one single person, the Father, constitutes the one true God. Jesus deliberately excludes all other persons from the Godhead. This is exactly what we expect in the context of the first century and from the Messiah, Son of God, who was a Jew as well as the founder of the Christian faith. Jesus affirmed this unitary view of God expressly in Matthew 19, verse 17, where he says, quote, only one is good. He was pointing to his father. The unitarianism of Jesus is one of those immovable fixed pillars of biblical theology. W. D. Davies, distinguished expert on the New Testament and its Jewishness, says helpfully that there are ways in which, quote, the Old Testament and the New differ, but they constitute one book. Both Testaments present the same one God, quote, the God who speaks in Jesus Christ in the New Testament is the God Of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob the God who works in Jesus as his final agent in the new is quote the God who brought Israel out of the land of Egypt who led her through the wilderness spoke to her at Sinai gave her the prophets and brought her safely out of Babylon that's from invitation to the New Testament by W.D. Davies The New Testament never doubts that the God of which it speaks is also the God of the Old Testament. The God who acted in creation in Genesis has acted also in Jesus Christ. As Paul puts it, for it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ 2nd Corinthians 4 verse 6 the God who spoke to Israel in diverse ways and manners also spoke in his son Jesus Christ Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 it would be to throw the biblical story into confusion and to contradict Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 2 if one said That in fact, God was working and speaking through an eternal son, so called, from the beginning. This would destroy at a blow God's promise of and Israel's longing for the coming into existence of the Son of God, the descendant of King David. Just as in Jesus' parable, God first sent a series of prophets and only finally his son. Matthew 21, verses 33 to 41. So the book of Hebrews tells us that God did not speak in a son in Old Testament times. A.T. Hansen, professor of theology at the University of Hull, makes a point with which all Unitarians will be delighted. Quote, Hebrews 1, verse 2, could be rendered, he has in the last days spoken to us in the mode of a son, which would imply that the Sonship only began at the Incarnation. That's from Hansen's book, The Image of the Invisible God. The question is whether it's even fair to speak of Incarnation at all if one believes, as we do, that the Son began to exist at his begetting. Hebrews has nothing to say about a non-human Son existing before his birth. Hebrews is contradicted if, in fact, the one God was speaking through his Son in Old Testament times. It would be to throw the biblical story into confusion and to contradict Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 2, if one said that, in fact, God was working and speaking through an eternal Son from the beginning. This would destroy at a blow God's promise of and Israel's longing for the coming into existence of the Son of God, the descendant of King David. Just as in Jesus' parable, God sent first a series of prophets, and only finally his Son, Matthew twenty-one thirty-three 33-41, so the book of Hebrews tells us that God did not speak in a Son in Old Testament times. That is because the Son was promised for the future and was not yet existing. He was to be born to Israel, Isaiah 9, verse 6, and the details of his birth in Bethlehem were predicted from ancient times. You'll find that in Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. W.D. Davies has this also to say about the God of the Jews and thus the God of Jesus. Quote, a religious Jew in the first century would begin by assuming that there was one living personal God burning in his purpose who gave meaning to life from outside life and demanded love of and obedience to himself. In other words monotheism for first century Judaism was an assumption. This one holy God was the constant theme Of the thinking of the Jew." That's from W.D. Davis's book, Invitation to the New Testament. That assumption is never challenged in the New Testament, and there's nothing complicated about this simple fact. It remains the potential center around which a rallying cry for faith in Jesus for all peoples may be issued worldwide. The irony is that Jewish alienation from Christianity as it has been presented to them in Trinitarian form, may turn out to have been quite unnecessary. They could have come to Christ and rejoiced in the Messiah, who, like them, quoted and never deviated one iota from the Unitarian creed of Israel. The great truth of unitary monotheism underlies the whole of our New Testament and is never called into question. As a Jewish Unitarian, Jesus was passionately committed to the one God of his Jewish heritage. His own claims are unique, of course, and he's presented as the unparalleled human being, God's personal creation and head of the new created race of humans. Quote, the firstborn among many brethren, Romans 8, verse 29, who are also products as believers of the same new, not the Genesis, but the new creation. Jesus is the Son of God uniquely because of a miraculous creation in Mary. That fact is the demonstrable proposition of Luke 1, verse 35. He comes before us as the perfect example of man in relation to his Creator. That he claimed to be the Creator himself is found nowhere in the New Testament. It would throw the entire Bible into confusion and result in a multiplying of God. The whole point of the promised Messiah is that he is the ultimate human representative of God, reflecting God as man was intended to do. As God's vice-regent, he is man restored to the glory which Adam forfeited. To say that he himself is God presents us immediately with two who are God, and biblical monotheism is threatened with collapse. The Hebrew word for one means one. Faced with a traditional creed, which contradicts the strict unitary monotheism of Jesus and of the Bible, some believers in Jesus as Messiah, even remarkably Messianic Jews, have felt compelled to find a way to justify their departure from Jesus' creedal monotheism. This has led to one of the most bizarre exercises in the distortion of simple words known, I suppose, to the history of ideas. It needs to be exposed as a bold venture in twisting the straightforward terminology by which the God of the Bible declares that He is one single divine person. The assault on common sense, simple language facts and biblical authority we are speaking of, has to do with the Hebrew word echad, which is the cardinal number one. In counting, in Hebrew, one says echad shnaim shalosh, one, two, three. Extraordinary verbal acrobatics have been performed with the word echad by some Trinitarians in an effort to convince the public that the number one does not mean one. It's a tactic of desperation. It takes in only those who are not alert to the meaning of simple words. The obstruction of the straightforward meaning of the Hebrew echad one must rank amongst the most amazing pieces of bogus propaganda found in theological writing. We cite some examples of this. Professor Boyce attempted to find good reasons in the Hebrew Bible for believing that God is three in one. He wrote, quote, It has been argued that because Deuteronomy 6 4 reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, that the Trinity is excluded. But in this very verse, the word for quote, one is echad which means not one in isolation, but one in unity. In fact, the word is never used in the Hebrew Bible of a stark, singular entity. It's the word used in speaking of one bunch of grapes, for example, or in saying that the people of Israel responded is as one people. After God has brought his wife to him, Adam says, this is at last bone. Of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man therefore a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh Genesis 2 verses 23 and 24 again the word is a says professor Boyce it is not suggested that the man and woman were to become one person but rather that in a divine way They do become one. In a similar but not identical way, God is one God, but also existent in three persons. That's from J.M. Boyce, the Sovereign God. The statement proposed here by Professor Boyce about the meaning of echad is completely untrue. Echad occurs 970 times in the Hebrew Bible, and it's the number, quote, one. It means, quote, one single. It's a numerical adjective. The ordinary word for one functioning very much like our English number one. The Hebrew for eleven is one echad plus ten. Lexicons of the Hebrew offer no support at all for any complication of the simple word one. Ernst Jenny and Klaus Westermann in their theological lexicon of the Old Testament, Brown, Driver and Briggs, Hebrew and English lexicon of the Old Testament, Kohler and Baumgartner, lexicon of Biblical Hebrew. The theological wordbook of the Old Testament speaks of diversity within unity, but states rightly that this sense is found in its plural form, achadim, an adjective never used, of the one God. Abraham was viewed as the one, Echad, and the one father. He was certainly not plural. The same work, however, curiously, and without citing any examples, says that Echad, quote, recognizes diversity within that oneness. Actual definitions then follow one single blessing. Solomon was alone, Echad. Uniqueness, a single man, one voice. The word one, echad, displays no sense of diversity. The complaint about the popular misuse of the Hebrew word for one is made well in Lindsay Killian and Dr. Emily Palick's article The God of the Hebrew Bible and His Relationship to Jesus. The statement proposed by Professor Boyce, as I said, about the meaning of echad is completely untrue lexicons of the hebrew bible offer no support at all for any complication of the simple word one some unsuspecting readers have been bamboozled into the fraudulent argument that because one in english or hebrew can modify a compound noun then the word one itself must be compound one can think of humorous ways of exposing this trick Does one mean one single in the phrase one loaf of bread, and yet more than one in the phrase one loaf of sliced bread? We trust that the point is clear. One tripod is still one tripod, despite the three legs on the tripod. It is the noun in these examples which contains the idea of plurality, three legs, while the word one maintains, thankfully, the stable meaning of one single. One tripod is a single tripod. One lord in the Bible does not mean two or three lords. The meaning of one is precisely the same in one rock and one family. The numeral adjective one is not affected in any way by the collective noun family. According to numerous popular websites and even a number of textbooks, the combination one bunch... We are invited to think shows that one means more than one so-called compound one or composite one the mistake is perfectly obvious one bunch is still in hebrew and english one bunch and not two or more bunches it is nonsense to suppose that the word one has altered its meaning when it modifies a compound noun it is the noun which is compound And gives us the sense of plurality. The word one is fixed and unchanged in meaning in both one pencil and one bunch. The numerical adjective one retains its meaning always as one single. When Adam and Eve are, quote, one flesh, they are not two or more fleshes. One still means one. The combining of Adam and Eve as, quote, one flesh has not in any way altered the meaning of one, echad. On this amazing piece of verbal trickery, Christians have been persuaded that in the phrase one God, the word one imparts some sort of plurality to the word God. This is completely unfounded. It is plainly false. Imagine the confusion which would ensue if when we present our one dollar purchase At the checkout counter, we are told that one is really, quote, compound one, thus the item will cost three or more dollars. A compound noun is clearly made up of a number of items, but the word one, which stands before it, is not in any way changed by its proximity to the compound noun. However, the unwary, have been taken in by the most amazing assertions that Echad tells us that God is more than one. Professor Boyce's assertion that Echad, quote, in fact is never used in the Hebrew Bible of a stark singular entity, cannot possibly have been checked by that author. One suspects that it is a piece of misinformation passed on uncritically as dogma It has, however, no basis in fact. Equally unreasonable is the suggestion of Michael Brown on Zechariah 11 verse 8, where the prophet speaks of one echad month. Brown asks, What does that tell us about the essential nature of a month? Does it mean that a month does not have 30 days because it is one? That's from Dr. Brown's book Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus. The word one modifying month is not remotely connected to how many days there are in a month. On Brown's argument, the word one loses its fixed sense as one single, and the whole argument is then brought to bear on the central question of monotheism and is used to justify a plurality in the Godhead how would the proponents of one as quote compound one explain Nehemiah 11 verse 1 quote one echad out of 10 or Ezra 10 13 quote one echad day or two another quotation two are better than one echad that's in Ecclesiastes 4 verse 9 if two lie down together they keep warm but how can one alone Echad keep warm? Ecclesiastes four verse eleven. Where alone Echad, a lone man, that is, may be overcome, two together may resist. Ecclesiastes four twelve. The rest of the nine hundred and seventy appearances of Echad might be cited to make exactly the same point. Ignoring this massive evidence. For the meaning of the word one, as one single, one alone, Robert Morey says that echad means quote, a compound or unified oneness. If the authors of the Bible were Unitarians, we would not expect to find echad applied to God. He says that in his book, The Trinity, Evidence and Issues. The facts, however, are precisely the opposite. Echad always means one single, and it's applied to God, who is a single divine person. Mori invites his readers to imagine that, quote, one means more than one. He cites six examples, including one day in Genesis 1, verse 5. The word one, he says, refers to compound oneness because the day combines morning and evening. The truth is that this means one day and not two or more days. The whole congregation from Dan to Beersheba can of course assemble as one man, Judges 20 verse 1, but the word one means just as much one and not more as in every one of its occurrences. In his long book on the Trinity, Robert Morey claims that the hebrew word quote one echad, really means more than one he claims support from a lexicon that one means compound one mori includes a footnote to the standard brown driver and briggs lexicon of biblical hebrew for support but the page he appeals to contains not a word of support for his theory that one really means compound one the lexicons rightly define one, echad, as the cardinal number one. Echad is the word for one in counting. Imagine the chaos of communication if, quote, one really means more than one. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 speaks of two being better than one, echad. The use of one in the sentence they shall become one flesh does not mean that one is really plural. It means that two human beings in marriage become one, not two things. The idea of plurality is not found in the word one at all. It's found in the context male and female human persons. The idea that the word yachid would be the only word suitable to describe a Unitarian God is false. Yahid in scripture is very rare and has associations like lonely or solitary, which are not appropriate for God. Echad itself is the mathematical term meaning one, and it's sometimes rendered properly as, quote, unique or lone, Ecclesiastes 4, verse 12, in the New American Bible, or even by the indefinite article, A, Professor Boyce's extraordinary assertion that Echad never means anything other than compound one, as he says in The Sovereign God, raises my suspicions as to how far people will go to force their view of God onto Scripture. When a contemporary author cited uncritically Boyce's misinformation on the meaning of Echad, I wrote to him and received the following gracious reply. Following our recent correspondence, I have taken theological and academic advice, and it seems clear that my comments on the Hebrew word echad are inaccurate. I am very grateful to you for pointing this out, and assure you that in the future printings of the book, the paragraph will be replaced by one that uses other Old Testament arguments for the plurality of Yahweh's being. Thank you again for preventing that particular error being perpetuated in the book. That is from correspondence in regard to John Blanchard, Does God Believe in Atheists? This elementary information about the word one deserves the widest publicity. At present, the alleged, quote, plurality of the word one is being inadmissibly used To substantiate the completely unfounded idea that God in Scripture is composed of a plurality of persons. In 2002, the Seventh-day Adventists produced a complete book on the Trinity to reassure the religious world of their orthodoxy. A team of their scholars argued for a personal triunity in God, and in support of this doctrine spoke of, quote, the inherently plural word Echad. That's in the book by Woodrow, Widden and Moon, along with John Reeve. The book was called The Trinity. If one is inherently plural, then language has ceased to have stable meaning and to quote Henry Alford from another context, Revelation 20, verses 4 to 6, Quote, there is an end to all significance in language, and scripture is wiped out as a testimony to anything. That's from the Greek Testament of Henry Alford. For too long, some systematic theologians have blithely inserted a post-biblical dogma into the pages of the Hebrew Bible. Gustav Euler refers to the Shema as the, quote, locus of the unity and trinity of God. In his book, The Theology of the Old Testament, Jesus and many other rabbis would feel strongly that this is to deface the sacred text. One Lord God and the Hebrew Lexicons one Lord in Israel's creed means one single Lord. Jesus said that God is one single Lord. He defined him as the Father as well as the God of Israel. He is, quote, the only one who is truly God. John 17, 3, the number one is not the slightest bit altered if the noun it modifies has different parts. This is as simple and true in Hebrew As it is in English. Thus one family, though it has multiple members, is still one and not two families. The fake argument is presented like this. One echad, one God, can imply that God is more than one. This is untrue. One God or one Lord is still one single God or one single Lord. Jesus stated, agreeing with the constant reference to God as one person in the Old Testament, that, quote, the Lord, our God, is one Lord, Mark 12, 29 and following. If that statement is not clear, nothing is clear. Jesus was a unitary monotheist. Compound oneness is a strange grammatical category and is certainly absent from the leading lexicons of Biblical Hebrew. A glance at a reputable Bible Hebrew lexicon enables us to get our bearings. The following is the entry for the Hebrew number Echad. One, numeral one, one single place in Genesis 1. One soul, one single person. Deuteronomy 6.4, Yahweh is one, alone, one and only. In Zechariah fourteen the same and you have one of the people, you have one of your brothers, a single one of you, one of us, not one, not even one, a single day in first Kings five two. Once, not twice. You have only one in Genesis forty one twenty five, one, a unit a single whole, and so on. These definitions can be found under the entry Echad in the Hebrew lexicon of Brown, Driver, and Briggs. The unshakable foundation of Jesus' theology is his rock-solid belief in the one God of Israel. The Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels calls us to return To our Jewish Christian roots. I quote We must never forget that Christianity was built upon the foundation of Jewish monotheism. A long providential discipline had secured to the Jewish people their splendid heritage of faith in the one and only God. Quote Here, O Israel, Jehovah our God is one Jehovah. This was the cornerstone of the religion of israel these were perhaps the most familiar of all sacred words to the ears of the pious jew they were recited continually our lord himself had them frequently in his mind matthew 22 verse 37 mark 12 verses 29 to 30 and luke 10 verse 27 that jesus thought of god always as the supreme one is unquestionable. That's from the article on the Trinity in A Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels. The non-Trinitarianism of Jesus is thus unquestionable. Jesus had the biblical definition of God always in mind and spoke of it as the most important of all truths. His followers today would honor him by thinking as he did, about God God as one person in the Greek New Testament the New Testament not only defines God as the father thirteen hundred and seventeen times it also says expressly that God is one person consider the following in Galatians 3 verse 20 in the New Living Translation we read now a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. The same verse appears more literally in various versions. Now there can be an intermediary only between two parties, yet God is one. The New Jerusalem Bible. Or the New International Version. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Tyndale translated as follows: A mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. The sense of the word "eis" or "one" in Greek is one person. So also in the creed, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, eis Lord." In Galatians 3:20, God, we might say, is a party of one. The Amplified Version captures the sense that God the Father is a single person. There can be no mediator with just one person, yet God is only one person. What business then has the church saying that God is three persons? In so doing, Jesus' creed has been replaced by a different definition of God. A further examination of the word one is illuminating. In Mark 10, verse 21, In BBE, Basic Bible in English, Jesus remarked to the young man, There is one thing needed. That's the word n, the neuter form of the word for one. The Greek here simply has the neuter form of the word one, with known noun added. One is lacking. Translators correctly supply thing. One thing is lacking. When it comes to the Creed of Israel, the scribe's comment similarly provides no word after one, but here the Greek word for one is masculine and carries the sense of one person. Thus in Mark 12:32, quote, and the scribe said to him, well spoken teacher, you have rightly said that he is one person and there's no other besides him. This is Unitarian theology in its purest and simplest form, the scribe is in agreement with Jesus, the Unitarian. Similarly, obvious examples of the word one are found in Mark. One is of the twelve in Mark 14:20. The reference was to Judas, who was one person. quote This man is definitely one is of them in Mark 14:69. So also in Romans 3.30, quote, For God is one and will justify the circumcised on the basis of faith and the uncircumcised through faith. God here is one, is, the masculine form of the Greek word for one. The sense is one person, certainly not one thing, certainly not, quote, one what. Other passages follow the pattern of Galatians 3.20. Quote, now a go-between is not a go-between of one, but God is one. The sense again is that God is one person. Rebecca, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Romans 9.10. Here again, we have the masculine form of the word one. The sense, of course, is, quote, one man, one person exactly the language used of god who as the father is viewed as a single individual jesus said to him why do you call me good no one is good but one person that is god mark ten eighteen. the unitarian god appears when paul makes a definitive creedal statement quote, for there is one god and one mediator between god and men the man christ jesus first timothy 2 verse 5 james the half-brother of jesus was a unitarian also you have the belief that god is one he said and you do well the evil spirits have the same belief shaking with fear james 2 19 the sense is you believe that god is one person as scripture says not one of them is upright not a single one Romans 3, verse 10. Not a single person, is in the Greek, is upright. In Romans 5, 16 to 19, one individual is repeatedly described simply by the numeral adjective is, one person. The free gift is not like the result of that one man. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if by the transgression of the one, ease, death reigned through the one, ease, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, ease, Jesus Christ. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the One, Is, the many will be made righteous. You'll find that in Romans 5, verses 16 to 19. The One here is obviously one person, one individual. The same singular masculine word for One is used of God in the creedal statements we've examined. The loss of the simple numerical concept of One. The confusion over the simple concept of God as one person, so unremittingly presented in Scripture, has led clergy to make extraordinary comments on the difficulty of their Trinitarian position. Quote, it was our blessed Lord's divinity which we have seen he studiously concealed but wished all men to come to the knowledge of. That's cited in John Wilson, Unitarian Principles Confirmed by Trinitarian Testimonies. Luther said of the Trinity that he did not so much believe it as find it true in experience. It was experience and not faith alone that made him a Trinitarian. Servetus, a Spanish physician, paid with his life at the hands of Calvin for disbelieving that three could simultaneously be one. You'll find that account in Jacques Barzin, From Dawn to Decadence. J.H. Newman, who left the Church of England for the Roman Catholic Church, is hardly confident of the Trinitarian Creed. He says, and I quote, The mystery of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is not merely a verbal contradiction, but an incompatibility in the human ideas conveyed. We can scarcely make a nearer approach to an exact enunciation of it than that of saying that, quote, one thing is two things. Find that in select treatises of St. Athanasius. Episcopal priest Dick Nolan remembers, when I lectured lightly, meaning as a novice scholar, along those non-trinitarian lines in the 1970s at a Roman Catholic college in Connecticut, The chairman-priest of the theology department said right out that he didn't doubt what I was saying regarding Jesus and Scripture, but that the Roman Catholic Church teaches differently, enriched by the Greek philosophical heritage developing in the post-apostolic Church period. Roman Catholics and many Anglicans place a great deal of confidence in their notion of tradition apparently as authoritative as Scripture. This allows them to be dismissive of those of us who focus on Scripture as primary and do not accept the councils as authoritative. I don't know how one responds to their epistemological assumptions, but to say that I disagree. That's from an email message in August of 2006. Roman Catholic scholar, Jules Le Breton, Society of Jesus, in his detailed study of the history of the dogma of the Trinity, begins by speaking of the Jewish monotheistic faith as a creed Jews were willing to die for. I quote, Jews recite every day at the beginning of their prayers, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. According to the rabbinical tradition, the accent should be placed on the word one. And it is said that when Akiba was put to death, he kept up his courage by the reputation of the sacred word one, echad. This monotheistic faith was very inspiring and an efficacious preparation for Christianity. Similarly, when our Lord was asked which was the first commandment, he replied, Hear, O Israel! The Lord thy God is one God, Mark 12, 29. Unfortunately, the Jews were soon to make an obstinate use of these holy words in their conflict with Christianity. In the Talmud, Trinitarian faith is refuted on the grounds of polytheism by this verse of Deuteronomy. At the date of which we're speaking, the decisive test has not yet been applied. Christ has not yet appeared and the monotheism of the Jews is not yet in opposition to the dogma of the Trinity. On the contrary, that monotheism was a preparation for belief in the Trinity by widening the conception of God and making it more universal and less national. As from the history of the dogma of the Trinity. What has happened here? With one hand, Le Breton, concedes that Jesus was an exponent of Jewish monotheism and then he seems to reverse his own thinking. He speaks of the dogma of the Trinity as a legitimate universalizing of the idea of God. He relegates the teaching of Jesus about who God is to a mere, quote, preparation for Christianity. Jesus therefore must have been a pre-Christian teacher. The Jews, wrongly as Le Breton thinks, stubbornly used the Shema against the later Christian dogma of the Trinity. But then Jesus was one of those stubborn Unitarian Jews. Would he today be less at odds with the Christianity which bears his name? Later church fathers admitted that their Trinitarian view of God was not found in Moses. Church father Epiphanius says, the divine unity was first and foremost proclaimed by Moses, the duality, the distinction between father and son, that is, was heavily stressed by the prophets, and the trinity was clearly shown forth in the gospel. The affirmation of the Mosaic Shema by Jesus, however, prevents any such, quote, enrichment Or expansion of the Godhead. The God of Jesus is the unchanging God of Moses and of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why not unanimously of the Christian followers of Jesus? Epiphanius is quite mistaken to imagine that the prophets spoke of a duality of Father and Son in God. If, as Le Breton says, the Jews made an obstinate use of the Shema. counter the christian trinitarian creed why does he not add that jesus himself was an equally obstinate proponent of the unitary monotheistic creed of israel jesus according to our records remains in opposition to the church creed which has forgotten about his own teaching on the nature of god surely it's time for the church to become honest with the words of its founder and to admit that the appallingly complex notion of God as three-in-one is no part of the Bible, which is supposed to be the norm for Christian understanding, since at least Protestant Christians claim the sola scriptura slogan as the heart of their belief. The words of a noted systematic theologian may encourage a return to Jesus as our theologian. Quote, The Church's doctrine of the Trinity would seem to be the furthest from the New Testament writers' minds. And today the reader may well wonder whether it's even helpful to refer to such a dogma in order to grasp the theology of the New Testament. When the Church speaks of the doctrine of the Trinity, it refers to the specific belief that God exists eternally in three distinct, persons who are equal in deity and one in substance. In this form, the doctrine is not found anywhere in the New Testament. It was not so clearly articulated until the late 4th century. That's from Christopher Kaiser, The Doctrine of God, a historical survey. Modern objectors to the loss of Jesus' creed. Other significant contemporary voices are being raised, in protest against the obstruction of the teaching of Jesus about God, Professor of Systematic Theology Karl Heinz Olich of Saarbrück concludes his magnificent study of the history of Trinitarianism by saying, quote, Jesus himself knew only of the God of Israel, whom he called Father. The Trinity possesses no biblical foundation whatsoever. That's from Karl-Heinz Orlich's book 1 or 3, 1 oder 3. Professor J. Harold Ellens pleads with the Church to speak with honesty. Quote, it should be candidly admitted by the Church, then, that its roots are not in Jesus of Nazareth nor in the central tradition of biblical theology. Its roots are in Philonic Hellenistic Judaism and in the Christianized Neoplatonism of the 2nd through the 5th century. That's from Professor Ellen's book, The Ancient Library of Alexandria and Early Christian Theological Development. Professor Martin Werner had alerted the Church to its own early misdevelopment, complaining that the post-biblical church achieved such a transformation in the identity of its saviour that it created, quote, a myth behind which the historical Jesus completely disappeared. The new interpretation, says Professor Martin Werner, of the concept of the Son of God did correspond to the mythological thought of Hellenistic folk religion, the new interpretation had first appeared in the oldest form of Gnosticism. A Gnostic theory was rejected, but sooner or later it was annexed by the Church to its own set of fundamental notions. With what hopelessly confused formulae the Nicene party at first entered into the debate with the Arians. I note that even at Nicaea, person, hypostasis, and essence, usia, meant the same thing. Later, a clear distinction between these terms, person, and essence, formed the basis of the Trinity. Alexander of Alexandria said that the Son exists, quote, independently of God the Father, continually begotten in a state of unbegottenness. This theology no longer presented itself unequivocally as a monotheism. Judged by a rigorous monotheistic criterion, not only Gnosticism, but also the teaching of the Church's theologians was defective. For, according to the New Testament, witnesses in the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, relative to the monotheism of the Old Testament and Judaism, there had been no element of change whatsoever. Mark 12, 29, recorded the confirmation by Jesus himself without any reservation of the supreme monotheistic confession of faith of Israelite religion in its complete form. That's from Martin Werner's book Formation of Christian Dogma. How astonishing then that a contemporary apologist for the Trinity was able to pen these words in his discussion of the Shema. The shadow of the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, Deuteronomy 6.4, though never quoted in the New Testament though alluded to in James 2.19, broods over its pages with all the weight it carried in Old Testament times, being the chief and holiest declaration of the Jewish religion. That was from the book by E. Calvin Beisner, God in Three Persons. But the Shema is indeed quoted in the New Testament and by Jesus himself. One might wonder whether anyone is equipped to discuss the Trinity in the New Testament if he's unaware that Jesus quoted the Shema in the New Testament. Equally perplexing is the blatant contradiction of Luke 1.35 found in the Hastings Dictionary of the Bible article on the Trinity in its comment on Luke 1.35, which grants the sonship of Jesus in the miraculous begetting The dictionary first quotes the revised version That which is to be born, margin, or is begotten, shall be called Holy, the Son of God. And then the dictionary denies the obvious reason for Jesus' sonship It was not the sonship, but his holiness from his very birth, which was secured by the miraculous conception. Luke makes no such distinction, however. Jesus is both the Son of God and holy precisely because, theoke in the Greek, precisely because he was supernaturally begotten in Mary, it is the miracle performed in his mother which constitutes Jesus, Son of God. Jesus did not become a man after being an invisible spirit, He was a man from conception on. Jewish opposition to the Trinity. We remind our readers again of Jewish commentary, which is rightly offended by Christian attempts to interfere with the Unitarian Creed of Moses and Jesus. From an Orthodox Jew comes this objection to the Christian departure from the Creed of Israel. As every Jewish child learns, Shema Israel, Hashem Eloheinu, Hashem Echad, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one, Deuteronomy 6.4. This is a very simple and fundamental concept. God is one. Christians give lip service to the Shema, but their theology says that there is a Trinity, God, Jesus, the Son of God, and the Holy Ghost. They will try to teach you that this trinity of three entities is really just one, like a bunch of grapes is one. But the Torah is very precise in its language. Christians cite Genesis 1 verse 5. And there was evening and there was morning one day. To suggest that Ehad modifies morning and evening and puts them together into a quote bunch. Clearly, the word Echad only modifies the word day. Similarly, they quote Numbers 1323, which describes how the Israeli spies cut down a branch with one Echad cluster of grapes. But here too, Ehad modifies the word cluster and not grapes in the shema echad modifies the word god and means precisely what it says one moreover if the torah wanted us to know that god was more than one it would have told us then about the trinity instead of making a specific point that there was only one god that's from bruce james baruch gerom in an article, Why Can't a Jew Believe in Jesus?